morning. It is good to see you here. It's good to be back. We were gone for a week, and I uh, appreciate Wes for filling in for me last week. I heard he made everybody cry, so I'm sorry about that, but, uh, but it sounded like it was a good, good time. And so I'm very blessed, by the way, and I've said this many times before. Uh, I've known pastors who don't take a Sunday off. One I know of never took a Sunday off for 26 years, and I don't know how he maintained that kind of schedule and how his family maintained that kind of schedule. So I do appreciate it. Uh, We had a good time in Montana. Uh, We had a birthday party for our youngest grandson, Zeke. And uh, I don't have any pictures because all the pictures he's covered with cake uh, that I have. So he had a good time at his birthday party. There were uh, 29 people there. And each one of our grandchildren's first birthdays, I do a little grandfather blessing, uh, which is an opportunity to share the gospel also with those who don't know Christ that are in that gathering. It's interestingly, it's been about the same group of people every year for the two granddaughters and now our grandson, Uh, but I was sharing with them out of uh, the end of Genesis, there's an interesting sentence about Joseph. It says, Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons and the sons of Machir and the sons of Manasseh were born on Joseph's knees. And that seems like a strange thing, and yet in the Hebrew language, which this was originally written, there's an implication here that Those of you who are grandparents or will be grandparents or hope to be grandparents can have a massive effect on not only your children, but on your children's children and their children if you live long enough. Like I told Zeke's other grandfather, his name's Doug, I said, well, Joseph was 110. We've got a few years to go yet. And uh, so, uh, but it's quite a blessing. So we had a good time over there, a lot of snow, and we're glad to be back here to to the basin. So thanks for praying for us. I appreciate it. Well, it's been pretty uh, wild as we got back. Um, NCAA March Madness Basketball Tournament. If you follow follow college basketball, you've probably been watching many of those games. Uh, I'm kind of like Charles Barkley. All of my picks lost in the first go-around, so I'm done. And and then St. Patrick's Day yesterday. And uh, the interesting things about St. Patrick's Day, uh, if you've ever been to Chicago on St. Patrick's Day, you probably know that they dye the Chicago River green. And my question is, is why don't they dye it blue the rest of the year? You know, because it's, it's usually just brown, you know. So it's quite a, quite a deal, and uh, all the Irish come out, big parades, uh, lots of fun. And uh, we have a, a traditional Irish meal, uh, corned beef and cabbage, And uh, because I'm about this much Irish in my background as I took the DNA test, so now I can call myself Irish, but uh, um, I was thinking about Patrick. Again, as I read about Patrick, I don't know if you know this, but he wasn't even Irish. Uh, Patrick was a Briton who, as a teenager, was captured by Irish raiding parties and taken back to the Emerald Isle, where he was a slave for six years before he finally escaped. I don't know if you knew that about Patrick. There's a lot of myths about Patrick. Uh, Patrick didn't drive out all the snakes out of Ireland because, first of all, there were no snakes in Ireland. And so that's another myth. Uh, But uh, Patrick uh, was an amazing missionary and an amazing man that God used to turn a nation, turn a people, a culture around for the cause of Christ. He was not the first missionary, by the way. He followed another one. And uh, his heart was so aflame with the cause of Christ that a whole nation was changed because of what Patrick did. And by the way, he really isn't a saint other than, you know, in that kind of idea. 
Uh, I believe he's a saint because he's a believer in Jesus. But the Roman Catholic Church never affirmed him as being a saint. So uh, St. Patrick is really kind of not, not totally accurate as we think of being called a saint. Although we as believers are called saints. So there you go. Uh, so today we come uh, to a passage of scripture. We are beginning an Easter, just a short series of Easter messages out of the Gospel of John. And if I were to ask you, and if I asked maybe 100 people how the Lord's Prayer starts, uh, at least 99 would say, Our Father which art in heaven, which is the prayer you find in Matthew chapter 6. Very familiar prayer, but uh, you would be wrong, and I would be wrong if I said that was the Lord's Prayer, because it's really not the Lord's Prayer. Remember in that passage in Matthew 6, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, and he uh, responded to them with a model prayer, our Father which art in heaven. But this cannot be the Lord's Prayer because the sinless God never had to pray, forgive me my debts. The sinless Lord Jesus Christ never had to pray that because Jesus never had to ask for forgiveness because he never sinned. And uh, what we normally call the Lord's Prayer would more typically or more accurately be called the Disciples' Prayer. And so the little pericope, that's those little headings in your Bibles that are not part of Scripture, but the, the editors are trying to help you understand what the paragraph says. It should really say the Disciples' Prayer in Matthew 6. But if you want the real Lord's Prayer, that's the one Wes read for us today out of the Gospel of John, chapter 17, 26 verses. And this is what is commonly called the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I don't think I'm exaggerating any to, to say that this is probably the highest, greatest chapter in all of the Bible. This is an amazing insight into Jesus communicating with God the Father. You know, we see Jesus communicating with other people, but here he's communicating part of the Godhead, communicating with the other person of the Godhead, and it's like stepping into the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, if you will, that there is a fact here that this is very holy ground. We see Jesus praying to the Father. One of the questions I get once in a while is, why should we pray? Things are going to happen anyway. Well, my common response is, is Jesus prayed. And if Jesus prayed, that's an indicator. If we're called Christians, little Christs, that we should pray too. Sometimes it may seem like a hopeless exercise, and yet, God knows, God hears every prayer. Well, this prayer for the ages, as it's been called, in John chapter 17 has impacted many great men of God. You may recognize some of these names, but some of them you may not, like J.C. Ryle from time past. He wrote of this passage of Scripture, quote, The chapter we have now open up to us is the most remarkable chapter in the Bible. It stands alone, and there is none other like it, unquote. The great reformer Philip Melanchthon wrote, Quote, there is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself, unquote. William uh, Kelly, another uh, great expositor of God's word in days past, wrote that John 17 is a chapter which one may perhaps characterize as truly an, uh, or unequaled for depth and scope in all of the scriptures, unquote. So throughout church history, great leaders of the church have been impacted by this chapter of John chapter 17. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, many 
many more, even contemporaries in our day. I think Billy Graham said that if he had it to do over again, he would spend more time in prayer, and it was based on John chapter 17 that this impacted him so much. There's ample reason to praise this chapter. You know, there's about 650 prayers that are recorded for us in Scripture, either full prayers or partial prayers, uh, but none of them come to match the brilliance that we find in John chapter 17 of a prayer. Uh, The Gospels record that Jesus prayed 19 different times, and uh, but this is the only long prayer and probably the only complete prayer that is recorded for us, and here the Gospel of John does that. Uh, In these 26 verses, uh, this prayer was recorded for us. Uh, Jesus probably prayed this in the upper room, as he's finished uh, teaching his disciples, and he's praying just before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's arrested and then tried and, of course, crucified. So as we begin this Easter season, this is what we are doing. We're going to do a three-part series today. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and then the following Sunday is Easter Sunday, or like I like to call it, Resurrection Sunday. And, of course, for the believer in Jesus Christ, every day is Resurrection Day because we have a future and a hope because of Jesus Christ. And so we'll look at three major parts of the Gospel of John these next three Sundays, today and the next two, as we move up to Resurrection Sunday. It's a three-part Sunday. Well, obviously, we're jumping in close to the end of the Gospel of John. And to set the context, a broad outline of the Gospel of John goes something like this. There are basically two books of John. Uh, the first 12 verse, 12, excuse me, 12 chapters are called the Book of Signs, the Book of Signs. And this was Jesus' public ministry. It's a record that John, the Apostle John, recorded for us of his public ministry. And then beginning in chapter 13 through the end of the Gospel of John is called the Book of Glory, the Book of Glory. And it's his private ministry to his apostles, to his followers, to his disciples. And within this section, chapters 13 through 21, if you looked at the big chunks within this part of the Gospel of John, in chapters 13 through 16, he was preparing the disciples. It's often called the upper room discourse. He's teaching them. Remember, he washed their feet and uh, commanded them to do the same. In other words, it was a picture of serving one another. And in chapters 13 through 16, he's teaching them, preparing them in the upper room as they met there. Here in chapter 17 is the prayer for the disciples and for the church. In chapters 18 and 20, we have Passion Week and the Resurrection, which we will look at over the next couple of weeks. And chapter 21 is really the the epilogue or the conclusion of the Gospel of John. John, interestingly, if you turn over a couple of pages from John 17 to John 20, is a book which gives us very clearly the purpose why it was written the purpose why it was written. And uh, John, by the way, is an evangelistic track. In other words, its purpose is declared here in chapter 20, beginning in verse 30. John writes here, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31, But these have been written so that, so that is the purpose statement, that's, that's the indicator there, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so John is a gospel track. It is the, the portion of scripture we give people who are 
seeking out what it means to know what it is to be a, a believer in Jesus Christ. When people have questions about Jesus, we give them the gospel of John, a great thing to give them. And so that's the purpose of the gospel of John. And so we listen to Jesus praying here, an unusual thing, a whole chapter, 26 verses. Now, we're not going to fully unpack this. We're not going to understand every verse here, but I just wanted to highlight some things. At the end of Jesus' instructions to his disciples, look at the end of verse 16. It says, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Jesus is encouraging his disciples and therefore encouraging us. Take courage. He has overcome the world. No matter what events were going to happen, Jesus knew that he was moving towards the crucifixion. He knew that it was coming. He knew he was moving in God's timing for the greatest hinge point in all of history, his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus is the overcomer. He is not a victim. Of this, God is completely sovereign and in control of this situation. He is and was the victor of all things. The word world is used in this prayer some 19 times. And so there's a connection between what Jesus told them at the end of verse 16 and the rest of this prayer, this prayer in chapter 17. And basically, the prayer is organized in three separate sections, verses 1 through 5. Jesus prays for himself. In, in verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples that are around him. In verses 20 through 26, he prays for the church. He knows the church age is coming. He's getting them ready for that. And so it's important that Jesus prays this prayer. And the main thing I want you to understand is Jesus prayed for you. Jesus prayed for you specifically, maybe not by your name, But in God's exhaustive foreknowledge, he knew there were many, many millions of people yet to be born and yet to come to be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he prays for you. But first he prays for himself. So what's on his heart? There's four things that stand out. It's really four themes in this prayer, and that's what we're going to look at as more of a thematic approach rather than a verse-by-verse approach. But the first one in verses 1 through 5 is that Jesus might be glorified. Look again at verse 1. Jesus spoke these things. That meant all the teaching that he just had done in the upper room in the last three chapters. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. That's the beginning of the true Lord's Prayer. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so that is the content of the first five verses. The term glory in John uh, is an interesting term. We, We think we know what glory means, and yet... Uh, It's worthy of our study, just for a moment here. Jesus' Bible was not what we hold in our hands today. He had an Old Testament that was translated from the Hebrew, which is called the Septuagint. And uh, it was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And Jesus is uh, quoted out of it, used, used it, and that was the Bible of the day because the New Testament had yet to be written. And so over 25 Hebrew words in the Old Testament were translated in this uh, translation called the Septuagint uh, by the Greek term doxa, and we call doxological. That means glory or uh, purposes. In the Old Testament in Hebrew, the Hebrew word was kabod, which meant different, weighty, heaviness, worthiness, reputation, honor, brightness, and splendor. So you kind of get an idea that this is something that is really, really important The Greek term comes from the verb to think in the sense of reputation. 
And also there are many different connotations that John uses of this word glory, the English word glory that he uses. He talks about divine glory. He talks about the revelation of the Father by Jesus' signs and miracles and teaching and the Passion Week that is yet to come. John uses that word there. And specifically, he uses it of the cross, the cross where Jesus hung and died, was crucified for us. And there's some fluidity between these usages in John. And yet the central truth is that the invisible God is revealed through God the Son, Jesus Christ, and his acts, the words and works of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, I just wanted to highlight that. Look at verse 3 again with me. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, verse 2, this is verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that they may know you. He's talking about the immediate disciples. He's also setting up the stage for world evangelism here, that they may know you. You know, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have to wait to get to heaven to get to know God the Father because we can know him and receive him uh, from him, the spiritual resources when the days are difficult because Jesus Christ came to reveal the Father, came to do the Father's will. Uh, The word know is used 141 times in the Gospel of John, but it does not carry the same meaning, even though our English translations typically use a similar word each time it's translated. There are four levels of knowing, and we would uh, identify with these. The lowest level is, is simply knowing a fact, simply knowing a fact. You know, one of the facts I know is that George Washington lived, according to the historians, okay? It doesn't do anything for me. I can be thankful for the father of our nation, but it's just a fact that I learned in school. The second level of knowing is to understand the truth behind the fact However, you can still know a fact and know the truth behind it and still be lost in your sins is the issue. And I use the example of flying on airplanes. Uh, You know, I can know that airplanes fly. I see them go over Ephrata, and I can uh, kind of understand the aerodynamics a little bit. They have wings. And, but until I get on an airplane and get both of my feet off the ground, I have no trust in that conveyance, do I? And so that I can know a fact and I can know some of the truth behind it and yet still not, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't change my life. The third level of knowing introduces relationship, relationship. To know means to believe in the person and become related to him or her. This is why uh, know is used in John chapter 17, verse 3. To know in scripture is used of an intimate relationship. Sometimes it's used between a, a husband and a wife, Genesis 4.1. It's that idea that we know each other. It's not just a fact. We're in a relationship. And the fourth use of know means to have a deeper relationship with that person, a deeper communion. And that was the level that the Apostle Paul used when he said that I may know him in Philippians 3.10, a deep level of relationship. Jesus describes this deeper relationship in John chapter 14, earlier in his teaching of the disciples. So Jesus prays that he might be glorified, and the reason is is that that we may know him, that he came to do the Father's will, and he wants to share the glory with us. And then also, as he fulfills the Father's will, that he would return to heaven into a glorified state. In other words, he would uh, return and sit at the right hand of the Father and interact with him, be our intercessor and our advocate in heaven. 
Secondly, the second theme is found in verses 6 through 12. And Jesus prays that Christians, people who follow him, would be unified, would be unified. And there are characteristics all scattered through this portion of Scripture in John 17 that are characteristics of his disciples. They were elect. In other words, they were chosen. They were obedient to know Jesus. They knew God and Christ. They accepted truth. They were prayed for. They, uh, they were to stay in the world. They are kept by his power. Uh, they are one as the Father and Jesus are one. They have his joy. They are not of the world. They are consecrated by truth. They are sent as he was sent. They are loved as the Father loved Jesus. But Jesus prays that we would be unified. In verses 11 and 12, he prays for our protection. Remember when Jesus prays for you, he prays that you would be protected. He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they might be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that scripture would be fulfilled. Of course, he's talking about Judas, who was already left to betray Jesus Christ. And so we are protected by the power of his name. And a name is important here in Scripture because the name denotes the power of God. That's why in the Old Testament in Hebrew, God is referred to the proper name of God as Yahweh. It's been roughly transliterated in the English as Jehovah. Some of you may have grown up in churches or used King James that used that term. But the Hebrew is really Yahweh, and it's a proper name, and it's a powerful name. And, of course, all the names of God used in Scripture denote something about his character. And so we are protected by the power of his name. Look at verse 11. It says that we may be one. Uh, if we will go on to verses 20, 21, 22, he prays the same thing, that we may be one. Now, this doesn't mean that we all run out and join the ecumenical movement of churches around the world. As C.S. Lewis said, he said, no combination of bad eggs results in a good omelet. And uh, so there is an aspect of man-made unity or the attempt to be unified in a man-made system, and yet God is calling us to be one. And as I understand this, as I have struggled with this and worked through it and studied it over the years, we rally around what is called the fundamentals of the faith, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the divine fact that he was born of a virgin, the miracle-working Christ. Uh, the second coming of Christ. We rally around those areas, and then those are called fundamentals or first things. And uh, that's what we rally around with other believers, even though they may be in another church. Where we differ is in secondary issues. For instance, the second coming of Christ. That's a fundamental of the faith, that all Christians, if you're truly Christian, believe that Christ is coming again. And uh, so, But we extrapolate from Scripture uh, what that second coming is going to look like. So that's where you find all these scenarios of pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, all this stuff. Uh, and we tend to divide over those things. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's not fundamental to the faith. Those are other issues. I think they're important. I believe they're important. That's why we have a doctrinal statement. And yet here he says that we may be one. You know, Paul Simon of uh, that folk group, Simon and Garfunkel, many, many years ago wrote some lyrics. Uh, he wrote these lyrics, Don't talk of love, I heard the word before. It's sleeping in my memory of feelings that have died. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. If I never loved, I never would have cried. And he goes on and on and on. As I read those uh, lyrics, uh, Paul Simon's trouble can be summed up with the little word I. It's in the singular you know, as believers in Jesus Christ, we're in the plural. 
It's we, it's us with Jesus Christ. It's not the I. And most of our problems come when we emphasize the I of our lives rather than the we of our lives. So therefore, we see that uh, Jesus Christ prayed for his glory, that he'd be glorified. He prayed for our unity. And then in verses 13 through 19, he prayed that his church would be sanctified. There's a change here. He says, now I come to you with these things. I speak in the world so that they may have my joy and made full of themselves. Jesus' desire for us is that we have joy. You know, joy should pervade our lives. And a joy is resting in the knowledge of the certitude that Jesus Christ loves us. He prayed for us. He cared for us. He's providing everlasting life for us. And we have great joy in that. That doesn't mean we don't have adversity or difficult times in life. But yet overall, through these things, there is a joy that should pervade the Christian's life. And uh, we sometimes uh, mistakenly think that if we're joyful, we're always happy. And happy tends to be based on circumstances where their joy is based on our position in Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed for our joy. He prayed for our sanctification in verses 17 through 19. Look at verse 17 with me. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Now, we talk about sanctification. It's a great theological term. It's packed full. And usually we think of sanctification as this process we are on as believers in Jesus Christ. Once we believe in Jesus, like I did at age 29, okay, that's when I was justified, declared righteous. I was free from the penalty of sin. And then I am being sanctified because eventually I will be glorified when I go from this life into heaven. And that's being freed from the very presence of sin. But in this present tense, I am being sanctified. We often think of that. I am growing in my freedom from, uh, from sin itself. In other words, we are all in this process. That's what we think of when we think of sanctification. But sanctify literally just means to be set apart unto something. Okay, you can have a nice set of china dishes at home that are sanctified for use on special occasions. Okay, Other, otherwise you don't use them. But here he's talking about being sanctified for a purpose, sanctified for a purpose. And in fact, Jesus said in 17 through 19 that he sanctified himself. Verse 19, for their sakes I sanctified myself for they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Notice the connection from 17 to 19 between the word of God, the truth of God, and the fact that Jesus Christ said he sanctified himself. Now, he doesn't have to be set apart from sin. He's already perfect. What's he talking about? He's talking about being set apart for a purpose, for a work, for something that he's going to do. And at this point, it's future to the cross. And he's going to go to the cross in a couple of days and die on the cross in just a short while. And that is what he's doing for all of us, for the world, dying for the sins of the world, and then rising again, gaining the victory over sin and death. And so when he talks about our sanctification in this context, he's praying that we would be set apart unto a task, a purpose greater than ourselves that the word of God directs us and guides us. Uh, Christianity is not a faith where you just simply say, okay, I believe in Jesus when I'm in third grade and now I don't do anything else. I just sit with my arms folded and come to church and do that kind of stuff. But uh, God has a purpose for your life. He has a goal and a direction for your life. It tells us the Holy Spirit guides and directs us. Are we listening? Are we following what he's doing? 
And the best way to understand that is look around and have your eyes open. Okay, what, is, what's, what keeps me awake at night in a good way? What am I passionate about? And how is God... How has he built me around that thing, whatever it may be, and how does he use that in the world around me for others? Remember uh, General Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, his motto, his mantra was, uh, God first, others second, and then me. And that was all how he worked through the Salvation Army. And so that the church might be sanctified, Jesus prayed for our sanctification. William Barclay, a commentator on this gospel, said, It's interesting to me how Jesus looks at men and women. He does not only see what a man or a woman is, he also sees what a man and a woman can become. He sees not only the actualities, but the possibilities. Each one of us has possibilities before us. We have an actual condition, but we have possibilities that God is leading us to. And that is exciting. That's why I call the Christian life an adventure, even in the tough times. Because we don't know a year from now where we will be, what will be going on, and how God is going to be leading and guiding us. And that is exciting. And that is it's an adventure of the Christian life. Uh, we are set apart for a special use of his word, the word of his truth, the word of God here in verse 17. In verse 18, we're sent onto the world to, on a mission to make uh, disciples. Verse 18, Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And why was Jesus sent into the world? To do the will of the Father, to bring salvation to a lost and hopeless, hell-bound humanity and to provide the salvation that only he could provide. And so we are sent to provide, to, to echo that to others around us. And we're set apart by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in verse 20, uh, John makes it very clear that he's not only praying just for the disciples gathered around Jesus in the upper room there and then soon to be the Garden of Gethsemane, but he's praying for you and I. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. And uh, we are reading uh, teachings from the apostles' words who were there. And we have been brought to Christ, especially those of us who were impacted by the gospel of John when we believed in Jesus for eternal life. It's a fulfillment of this verse. And he prayed for each one of us in that sense that we would uh, believe in him. And then the final thing, not only is Jesus praying that he would be glorified, that Christians would be unified, that his church should be sanctified or set apart unto a task, but the world would be evangelized in verses 20 through 26. You know, Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, that all believers belong to this one body of Christ. There's not a bunch of little bodies of Christ around. That's why we're simply an expression of the big body of Christ, the universal church, which began in the first century in Acts 2 and continues now as long as God has it continue until the day of the rapture. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul writes, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. The idea that there is a oneness, God cannot be divided. And in Ephesians, where we've been the last several weeks, Ephesians 2.19, that all of us belong to the same household. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So the world might be evangelized. So the world may believe, look at verse 21 again, Uh, that they may all be one even as you, Father, in me and I in you, and they also may be in us. Why? 
so that the world may believe that you sent me. We are a living testimony as we are brought together, as we exercise our faith together, that the world may believe. And then Jesus, in verse 24, prays that we would participate in his glory. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given to me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. First John chapter 3, verse 2, John's little epistle, says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him just as he is. You know, there's a dearth of teaching and understanding in Christianity today on the concept of heaven. And it's actually, uh, there's a lot of practical advice being given and biblical advice in churches across the land. And yet it seems like there's a decline in our desire to see heaven. And you know how I know that? Because our music always reflects our theology. And I I have a, a, a small collection of old hymnals And in the oldest hymnal I have, which is late 1800s, in probably about 70 or 300 uh, hymns in that hymnal, there are 73 hymns on heaven. Okay, about roughly a third of that hymnal were songs about heaven. Uh, I have a hymnal from 1976, some 75 years later, another about 300 hymns in there, and there are only 49. So almost half the amount of songs about heaven. And then the hymnal that we used to use, which was 1986. Uh, by the way, kids, a hymnal is a book with music in it. It, it was not up here. It actually has the music in it. You know, you have to turn the page. And it's, that's what that is. Uh, we have some around if you'd like to see something like that. But that hymnal, the last one we used here, uh, only had 26 songs about heaven in it in about 300 hymns. And so our music reflects our theology, and uh, I would like to do a count of what we would call music being written today, how many would talk about heaven, because it's a reflection of where we're at uh, as as a people. But I was thinking in that respect, uh, Fanny Crosby was a great hymn writer of the last, uh, the 1800s, and she wrote a great hymn that anticipates a believer's entrance into eternity, which we will all face. Uh, each one of us has everlasting life. For believers in Jesus Christ, it is everlasting life with Jesus in heaven. For those who don't believe in Jesus Christ, it's everlasting life in hell. And that is a sad, sad thing. Anyway. Fanny Crosby wrote, and I'll just read a couple of lyrics here. She wrote that someday the silver cord will break. That's this physical life. And I no more shall sing, but oh, the joy when I shall awake within the palace of the king. Someday my earthly house will fall. I cannot tell how soon it will be. But this I know, my all in all has now a place in heaven for me. And then the, the chorus goes like this, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace saved by grace. As we approach this Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, over these few weeks, uh, Jesus has prayed for our preservation. He's prayed for our sanctification, our unity, 
our glorification, and that our joy may be full. And he prayed for you, and I want to remind you of that as you think about that. And we can rejoice in the fact that we have a future and a hope if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, that we have a future and a hope in that. Uh, if you've been in the hospital recently, uh, when I had surgery, I recognized, spent the night in the hospital, and you have a little buzzer by your bed. And uh, if you need something, you can buzz the nurse, the on-call nurse or the duty, uh, and you, bu- you push a button, and they usually ask, what do you need? And, or they'll come see because your light's flashing and all of that. And, and sometimes you have to wait a long time if you've been in the hospital. Or sometimes, perhaps, they don't see your light or they're understaffed or whatever. But you know what? <clears throat> you can keep buzzing the prayer button, and God is right there. He's always there. And he's immediately accessible, which is an amazing, amazing thing. The God of the universe hears all of our prayers, answers them in his way, which is sovereignly good and correct and righteous, and we can trust in him for that. Uh, The great reformer, John Knox, and that's spelled K-N-O-X, if you're not familiar with John Knox. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a great name. I wish I had that name. But... uh, But as he lay dying, uh, he requested of his wife that she come and read to him every day certain Bible passages that would encourage him as he was dying. And she would read him a chapter out of the book of Ephesians, and she would read him the great passage out of Isaiah chapter 53. And she always read the great prayer of John chapter 17, this prayer. And early on the morning of November 24, 1572, John Knox asked his wife to read 1 Corinthians 13, uh, known as, uh, or 15, known as the resurrection chapter, because when she finished right reading that, he said, that's, that's really comforting to me, because the closer you get to death, the more you want to know about resurrection, about what Jesus Christ has planned. Four hours later on that same day, just before he died, John Knox called his wife in again and had her read John chapter 17. He called it the place where I cast my anchor. John 17 is the text she read. Early in the ministry, John Knox had cast his anchor on John 17, and the priorities he found there guided him throughout an enormously productive life. And when he was about to meet his maker, he wanted to hear for the last time about the anchor which had given him so much stability, so much direction, and so much hope. And I pray this morning that each one of us would consider that in this resurrection season, that as we go through March Madness and St. Patrick's Day and all the the things of life that we all deal with, that we'd remember that Jesus Christ prayed for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for this morning.